Hi guys, welcome to my Move and Inspire podcast. My name is Sophie Deer. I'm a yoga teacher, a health and happiness warrior, and like you, I am constantly doing my best to navigate this crazy world that we live in. My mission is to spread the zest that I have for life to each and every one of you and give you the chance to feel empowered, strong, connected, healthy, and above all, happy. I will be interviewing some kick-ass and inspirational people to motivate you to create transformations in order to live your best possible life. So today I'm interviewing Gillian Lavender from the London Meditation Centre. Gillian is one of the most experienced female meditation teachers in the world. Through teaching Vedic meditation, the world's most ancient form of meditation, Gillian has helped thousands of people transform their lives. She is also an expert in Ayurveda and consults on health, diet, sleep, fertility and lifestyle. Gillian is passionate about helping people be their best and delivers this ancient knowledge in an accessible and practical way for modern life. I met Gillian just over a year ago when she taught me to meditate and it's hands down been one of the best things that I have ever done. I've noticed a huge change in how I deal with the tricky situations in my life. I'm calmer, more able to adapt to situations. Things feel internally less dramatic and less difficult. My self-worth has improved. I'm able to pause, to take time and not simply react to situations, but actually take the time to process them. It's also hugely helped me with my insomnia, something that I have suffered from since I was 15 years old. So I feel honoured to have Gillian on my podcast as she really has been one of the most influential people in my life. So hi, Gillian. Oh, hi, Sophie. How are you doing? Really well, thank you. Really well. And I'm so excited to have this time for us to get in and talk about some of this a little bit more. Yeah, me too. Great. It's great that you're sharing this with everyone. Yeah. It feels like a a really wonderful time because we've actually ended up, even though I'm in Bali, we've ended up connecting on the phone quite a few times over the past month. And it's so it feels like a really perfect time to be talking about what we end up talking naturally in our conversations about. Yes. Yeah, I think it's all building beautifully. And, you know, we had that session when you were still in London and you had your one day session with all of your students. And that was great. And I can feel it sort of consolidating and building and everything is so relevant and then you know we go into this phase of just incredible change and it all becomes ever more relevant you know as we as we embark on a new a new phase for the for the collective so yeah it's and for us as individuals so it's great yeah i should have actually mentioned that so Gillian um came to speak at uh, my day retreat in London just before I left for Bali. Um, And the day retreat was called The Power of Now. And it just fitted in so well for me for Gillian to come and speak at that. And I know you speaking at that resonated with so many people. And um, yeah, it was a really wonderful collaboration. We'll hopefully be doing more of those at some point. Yeah, we'll be doing more of those, yeah. So I guess, um, firstly, I'd love you just to tell everyone a little bit about you and what led you to meditation. And within that, I'd love you to describe a moment in your life, so big or small, when you realised how much of an impact meditation had had on your life. Yes, so I have been 
meditating for a while now. I grew up in New Zealand and I did my degree there and I moved to Sydney, Australia, which is where I learned Vedic meditation, which is the technique that I teach. Um, we're going back in time a little ways here. Um, so I was working in a pretty intense startup. I was responsible for starting this business, I was part of a global publishing company. I was traveling a lot and, you know, Sydney is a long way from everywhere, um, as you're probably feeling in Bali right now. Uh, so I, you know, I was tired, I was stressed, I was working across time zones, I, I was feeling it and I wasn't sleeping very well, I wasn't making very good decisions about my health, I was things were definitely heading on a certain trajectory which had sort of unsustainability written all over it. And um, I knew nothing about meditation or yoga. I wasn't in that uh, world. And uh, it was through a friend that I found out about meditation, somebody who'd had a lot of issues with sleep, which is resonates with your experience. Uh, this was a, a man who had by this stage retired, very successful, but had a lifetime of sleep issues and he started sleeping once he learned Vedic meditation and because I was always tired and dragging myself out of bed in the morning you know just I, I thought okay I need to check this out and it was through that process that I learned to meditate and I started the way we practice Vedic meditation is we sit comfortably in a chair with the eyes closed for 20 minutes twice a day and I started integrating that into my life and because I was doing so much flying it's, it's just absolutely fantastic for jet lag. So it's an ultimate jet lag buster. I mean, we're not doing much flying at the moment. Um, but back then, I, was, I felt like I was always on a plane. Um, so it helped me a lot with that. But normally we would meditate first thing in the morning and then late afternoon, early evening, we'd sit down again. And I just started incorporating that into my routine and started noticing changes really quickly. And I think that was important for me um, because I had gone into it with a little bit of a preconceived idea about you know this was going to be a bit you know woo woo and brown rice and sandals and it wasn't you know and that was the, that was really interesting because it and maybe we can make some time today to talk a little bit about that there's so much science that lies behind this ancient knowledge which is thousands and thousands of years old that comes from the veda veda means truth or knowledge sanskrit and so it was that that combination which was very compelling for me and uh, it made sense, and I noticed the changes, and I noticed the changes in my energy levels really quickly. I was getting out of bed before my alarm went off, which had not been happening. Um, I was feeling less anxious. That had been a big thing for me. You know, I, I had been thrown in the deep end work-wise. I, um, I was feeling a bit overwhelmed, and that shifted, and it wasn't like my life suddenly changed because I was meditating what was most important for me was I was handling it differently I was responding differently and I wasn't beating myself up and and having such a negating sort of sense of my own self-worth um, I was actually handling things very differently and other people were noticing it interestingly um, without me talking too much about what I was doing. You know, I remember seeing a friend and you you say, you know, are there, there were little moments along the way where you noticed uh, changes. I remember catching up with a girlfriend. I'd been meditating for a few months and I hadn't seen her. 
and we were having lunch and sort of halfway through the conversation she just stopped and she said what's going on and I was like well, um, you know you know I think she was have you met somebody what's going on you know you're different what's happening and I was like I was a bit taken aback you know I and then I thought well I'll think I've learned to meditate I did this meditation course and I've been doing this thing and she's like that's it she said you know you seem so much more grounded and the way I ex explained it to my friend was you know I felt like with meditation it was like you know, before before meditation, it felt like a storm was going on around me and I was sort of being, I was in this boat and I was being crashed onto the rocks and capsizing and being knocked around and kind of, you know, maybe keeping my head above water sometimes. But once I learned to meditate, it was like someone had put an anchor overboard and the storm was still going on around me, but I wasn't being beaten up by it and capsizing and, you know, being buffeted by all of that. I was feeling much more grounded and stable. And that is that was a real moment for me when I hadn't ever talked about it with this friend. And then she was reporting back to me something. And that was relatively soon into my meditation career. You know, I was only been doing it for three months. So I kept working in business. I moved to Paris for a while and then I moved to London. And I'm based in London now. And I decided that I wanted to have a change and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I took some time out. I think that was another pivotal moment for me in knowing one of the effects that meditation was having for me because there I was in this huge job that I'd been sort of working for and busting my boiler for for years. I'd got to the top of the sort of the, the ladder and then I decided, no, nah, this is not it. I'm walking away from this. People thought I was absolutely bonkers. But it was just, I was in a situation where I could really trust my feeling. And my feeling was, this is not it. This is not what I'm meant to be doing and the way I'm living my life. This is not it. I don't know what replaces it. I know I need to make space for this, for something else. And it's interesting, you know, I always say nature abhors a vacuum. You know, it's... Once you create space for change, then nature will come in. But I hadn't been creating space for it. I had been flat out and overworking. And then actually when I stopped and trusted my inner voice, that, that, that intuition, then everything started to become very clear for me. And that's when I, you know, decided, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. I'm, you know, pivoting like 360 degrees. Now I'm going to start to become trained to become a meditation teacher. I was like, you know, one would think, well, where did that come from? Um, and that's what I did. And I spent a year and a half with my teacher, Tom Knowles, in Flagstaff in northern Arizona. And I came out the other end in 2003 as a meditation teacher. So, you know, we've been teaching up until this point. My partner, Michael, and I in London and New York. Now, obviously, we're based here in London and our focus is there. I met him in through meditation in Rishikesh in India. He also learned with Tom. He's also a full-time teacher. So yeah, it's been an interesting, interesting ride. So much of that resonated with me and my experience of meditation. Two things that I just love to pull from that. Your friend to me feels like my mum. My mum obviously was seeing me lots, so it wasn't such a drastic change because it was a, a gradual thing yes. 
Yes. You obviously met my mom at the Power of Now, yes. and I think my mom yeah, like I really enjoyed this. Yeah, she was just saying to you how well, I think she was like thanking you so much because you <laughs> turned me into a much calmer, nicer person to be around. So she was, um, yeah, she was hugely appreciative. Of well, she knows you so well, and and I think can pick up this power that lies in those subtle changes that she was noticing and and the the kind of extrapolation of those changes she could see what she was describing for me as the impact of that in the way that you were making decisions and your speech and everything and uh yeah it was wonderful it was uh you know to to have somebody who knows you so well sometimes i think that can be a you know, sort of get in the way, but she was so clear about the changes that she was noticing in you. Yeah, it was it was a special moment for me. It was nice to see that. Yeah. Really <laughs> and um, I suppose the uh, the second thing that you said that really resonated there was um, being able to like trust yourself and make decisions. So for me, mm. um, I would say even a few years ago even small decisions, I'd have to ask everyone their opinion, what they thought, what should I do? Yeah. And I would stress myself out so much in terms of just making a simple decision. And now I have this ability to kind of just go within and really listen to my gut and understand what it is that is right for me, not for anyone else, but what is truly right for me. And that has been such a powerful thing in terms of meditation for me yeah yes somebody asked me this question recently they said what if you were to say what's the most important benefit that you have gained from meditation and there's so much you know in terms of okay i'm more rested and you know i'm more balanced in terms of the biochemistry in the body and hormonal balance and and all of the things all of the things that we can and it's a very long list the one thing that stands out for me is exactly what you're describing. It's that ability to make decisions from a place of truth rather than making decisions based on some intellectual, shoddy intellectual analysis about what is right in the moment. And in our society, we have been trained and schooled and rewarded for honing the intellectual skills and trying to work it all out and to the detriment of actually being able to tune in at a more subtle level to beyond the hypnosis of social conditioning what is actually right for me in this moment and that might change in 15 minutes what's right for me in this moment and that has nothing to do with what some B-grade celebrity on Instagram has to say about it or what some magazine has to say or what my mother has to say or anything. It's about what is being able to tune in and align ourselves with what's actually going on. That, for me, has been the most powerful shift because, like you, I used to worry about what everybody else thought. And I used to try to my bar was not based on what I was feeling was right. It was based on what I thought everybody else thought was right. And, um, you know, we get into this sort of very 
difficult and uncomfortable place of not knowing what to do. It's hellish, you know, when we ha don't have that resolution, when we're not sure of ourselves, then we waste so much time and so much energy, so much creative potential just gets chewed up and life gets eaten up because we're going back and forth. Should I do this? Should I do that? And well, he said that, but maybe I should have done that. And, you know, we're just second guessing ourselves the whole time. It's exhausting, you know, and it literally wears us down. And even more costly than that is that when nature is trying to sort of get our attention, we're too busy listening to what's going on in our head that we actually miss the opportunity and we don't follow the charm we don't follow the the inspiration and we miss that opportunity and that window shuts and then we're still you know caught up in our head very costly very costly so why is it that meditation is having this effect i think we need to get really clear about this because this can all sound a bit woo woo and i'm not into that i'm i want to make sure that what we're doing with our time in terms of our investment in a technique so powerful as Vedic meditation is, is that we understand the practical uh, implications of it and we understand what's going on. Why is it that I become clearer about who I am and I can trust myself? And this all has to do with what I call a sort of signal-to-noise ratio. You know, when you are tired and when you are stressed, you are pulled out of the present moment and you are caught up in the, in the head, trying to work everything out because the noise, i.e. the noise of all that excitation chemistry, that stress, that tension, that agitation, that fear, and the dulling effect of fatigue, and you know fatigue is a huge issue in our society, means that there is all of these obstructions, there's these layers that are getting in the way of us being able to access that more subtle realm where that gold dust lies, that information, that alignment with nature, we get pulled out into the surface layer of agitation and excitation. It's reflected in our biochemistry, so there's lots of cortisol sloshing around, there's lots of you know, the adrenal glands are pumping out the norepinephrine. Everything is in an excitatory state. The mind is racing. The blood pressure is up. Everything is on that, what we would call that sort of orientation towards fight flight. Now, what's meditation doing? Well, meditation is doing the exact opposite. It is bringing about an experience of de-excitation. And it's bringing about an experience of de-excitation, which is profound. It is many, many times deeper than sleep. And we used to think sleep was it. When actually, what we find is that's pretty mediocre compared to what we experience in a 20 minute sitting of meditation. You know, you sat down and meditated today. And in those 20 minutes, your nervous system was not creating stress chemistry. It was creating a cocktail of what I call bliss chemistry. You know, your dopamine levels were normalizing, your serotonin levels were up. You know, this is the happy stuff. This is the longevity chemistry, you know, happy chemicals, healthier, you know, happiness, healthy. That's all interrelated. So 
the whole biochemistry of the body was changing and your metabolic rate was dropping through the floor. You were resting unlike you've rested before. And in that, in that experience, the body can throw off all that excitation, all the impact of that stress, get rid of the dulling effect of the fatigue, and clarity comes because the signal to noise ratio has dropped. It's like, you know, if I had a, an old sort of beat up transistor radio and it's got so much static in it and I'm trying to get a clear signal, but I can't because there's so much noise in the way. I can't get the signal. Now, if I remove the static, I turn down the volume on all of that. Oh, now I can tune into the right radio wavelength there and I can actually align myself with what is actually going on rather than being caught in this never-ending cascade of thinking and trying to work it all out, which is, as I said, exhausting and unreliable and very often leads us down a path that's a bit of a dead end. We end up making a mistake, which is just a mistake. It's a misread on what's going on because we're actually not able to detect what's going on. So we want that signal to noise ratio to drop. And, and this is what meditation's doing. And I'm diving in and I'm experiencing myself at that baseline inner blissful state of consciousness, which is beyond thinking, state of being. This is the defining factor of Vedic meditation and how it's different from other techniques of meditation. It involves a process of stepping beyond thought to arrive at that source of thought, that unmanifest, unbounded, unified field aspect of nature. And we use in this technique a mantra, a sound, because sound is very, very refined. It's the most refined of all of the five senses, and it's a very efficient uh, vehicle for us to be able to access this very, very beneficial state, both in the physiology and in terms of brain functioning, because there's a lot that's changing in the brain when we meditate as well. Um, and so in a positive way, much more coherence, um, a lot of activity in the front part of the brain, which is powerful. You know, this is where we, we want that to be fully engaged. So yeah, there's a lot going on. And the, and the good news is with this is it's effortless, it's easy, it's natural. The only side effects are positive. Anyone can do this. You know, often people will come along to hear us speak at an introductory talk and, you know, they're sitting there thinking, oh, this sounds great. You know, I've tried the app, but that didn't really kind of do it for me. But, you know, am I going to be able to do this? Maybe I'm going to be the one that cannot do this. And... If I always say, if you can think, you can meditate with this technique because it's so natural, it's so fundamental to who we are. I love the way you explain everything. I wish I could um, remember that and like in all every single word you say so that I could say it to people in such an eloquent way. I think what really draws me to you is the um, the fact that A, when you talk about it, you talk about the science and what's actually happening in our bodies but also that you make it so accessible. Yeah. Again, it's like what you were talking about. You're not talking about, I love it, you always say brown rice and sandals. Yeah. It's so accessible and, um, yeah, it's so woven into everything that we need in our everyday lives. 
Yes, yeah. It's like brushing your teeth, you know. It's, of course, it's, you know, way more powerful than that, except what I'm getting at there is, you know, I have non-negotiables in my life. I don't tend to go through a 24-hour period without eating something. That's, I know that that's positive. If I missed a 24-hour period of, of nourishing my body with good food, I'd be okay. I'd feel effective, but no, no major damage. I tend to get horizontal and close the eyes every 24 hours and have some sleep. Less now as a meditator than what I would have had 20 years ago, um, and this seems to be the trend for meditators, less reliance on that. However, meditation doesn't replace sleep. Sleep is very important. Now, if I miss, let's say, when Loey was really little and she didn't have a, you know, my daughter didn't have a great night's sleep and I was up a lot um, with a newborn and I might not have really slept that much. Um, that's not my preference. I feel the effect of that the next day. Um, no major damage. No major damage is being done. However, I can feel the effect. Now, if I don't eat for seven days and I don't sleep for seven days, now we're in a very different territory. The impact of not having those non-negotiables in my life is starting to have a harmful effect on my psychophysiology and my functioning in the world. Meditation is in the not negotiable category for me. Now, I don't miss my meditation because I, you know, I know the value of it and, and I'm not going to, that's, you know, something that I'm committed to doing and, and I find that to be a very uh, pleasurable and necessary experience. If I did, and times have gone when I've missed a meditation, you know, I'm over the years, I would notice it. I would notice it. That'd be fine. I could function the next day. But if I didn't have that for seven days, whoa, you know, we'd be, it, it would be, it would certainly, I would be noticing the effect. And, you know, someone said to me, oh, my God, you know, you're addicted to this meditation. You know, this is, and I'm like, well, let's just get clear about such a loaded term, you know, Everybody is, as a human being, living with an interdependent relationship to their world. I mean, interdependency is exactly what we are all dealing with. Everybody is dependent on something. So I am dependent on good quality air. I'm dependent on water. I'm dependent on good food. I'm dependent on cuddles. I'm... These are the good dependencies. I am dependent on rest. If I don't get good rest, I'm not able to function creatively and nicely and smiley and all that stuff. So, yeah, I am absolutely dependent on meditation. Now, we know there's a whole category of the not-so-good dependencies, which are having a detrimental effect to our ability to function in the world and our health and our longevity, Everybody's dependent, you know, and uh, so, yes, I, you know, rest. Well, interesting, we were talking about this in our group meditation last night because rest just often gets such a bad rap. You know, there's been this so much value placed on being busy, you know, and busy, 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 and and rest is sort of this thing of, oh, you know, you just sort of lolling about, you know, doing nothing, and I, I don't... I don't see it like this. Rest is one of the most valuable things that I can do in order 
to function at my best and be the best for other people, which is ultimately what it's all about. And being able to relate in a way which is healthy. And I know we, we want to talk a little bit about relationships. And so rest is way up there in my non-negotiables. And I know the, the Rolls Royce of resting. You know, I know how to get good rest in 20 minutes. Way, way better rest than what I would have got in, you know, eight hours of lolling about unconscious with my eyes closed trying to sleep. So it's very, we're able to make this knowledge uh, inspiring and accessible and understand it so that there's no mystery around this and and so that people can be inspired to move in the direction of learning how to experience who they truly are. And uh, they're not going to find that through this constant, never-ending search outside. <laughs> it's a process of diving in, and all the great traditions, uh, spiritual traditions, talk about this. And you know, you were talking about the power of now. The power of now—that's a—that is supported through an ability to be able to do just that. You talking about rest is, um, it, I mean, again, it resonates a lot because of being someone who has suffered from insomnia from from the age of fifteen. And I would say it wasn't until just before I had started to meditate with you, my sleep had started to get better. And it continued on this amazing journey of just getting better and better. And I felt so incredibly emotional because what I realized was, I know I can now go back to this place of being able to sleep. Whereas I'd had about 18 years of really quite rough sleep and done, done lots of different things to try and sort it out. And last year, I just, I had this kind of, yeah, this incredibly emotional moment where I realized I now know that if I get into a bad patch of insomnia, I can get out because I've been able to get into a place where I can sleep now. But not only that, when I have bad sleep, I feel so much more reassured in the knowledge that I'm getting this incredible rest by doing my daily meditation. And something that I loved when you, when you speak about the science um, uh, behind meditation is that when they did the tests, I think it's in the 60s, they realised... Yes, in 1970, 71, 72, the early, the first studies came out. Uh-huh. Okay, so that was when they realised that um, meditators were getting five to eight times deeper rest than sleep. Have I said that right? Um, up to about five times that it showed in, in the laboratory setting. So, you know, this technique, this many, many thousands of years old, five to ten thousands years old, this knowledge, which, you know, we're very fortunate that we're able to teach it in the purity of how it has been taught over thousands and thousands of years. A man came out of India, the place where this knowledge has been most effectively preserved, and started teaching in the late 50s and the 60s, um, and it really took off in the West. He came to the West, brought this knowledge, particularly in the US. And people were reporting, you know, well, my skin's better, I'm sleeping better, my blood pressure's come down, I, you know, I'm just feeling more positive, da di da di da All of these subjective benefits. Now, in the West, we like to measure things and we like data and we want to know what's going on. And very interestingly, when they started getting quite new meditators into the laboratory in, in like 
about 1970, this started in the west coast of, of the States, they saw incredible change in the brain functioning and the metabolic rate and the biochemistry of these meditators who'd only been meditating for a few weeks. They were newbies, you know, but the change was unlike anything that had been measured before. And that was very important for a society in the West that values very highly this kind of data and in many ways needed that to sort of back up and validate um, this and give it an appeal that would be broader and more reassuring for people rather than some sort of robed person coming out of India and, oh, this is all a bit, you know, brown rice and sandals. Actually, this is something, you know, and, I, and we see this in the work that we're doing. You know, if you say, well, who's learning to meditate these days? It's such a cross-section of society. It's not, oh, I'm only sort of tapped into the yoga community and, and, and the world that you know so well. I have been teaching mums with three kids and a taxi driver and, you know, I had a guy who works in construction and then I've got the hedge fund guy in the city and da di da di da And, you know, a 10-year-old child who's having trouble with anxiety. You know, it's, it's so, so broad, the appeal of this. But, yeah, the science is, is really compelling. Very, very interesting. You may even get... And there's so much now. You may even get my mum at some point. She was... Um... Yes, I, I had that feeling when she and I had that lovely interaction. Um, yes, I, I did plant a little seed there, so let's see. And, she, I mean, if she does it, that, that would be amazing because she's definitely someone who's the kind of person who's like, no, I just, A, I don't have time to meditate and, and B, I just couldn't, I couldn't be, I couldn't do it. You know, lots of people say that actually. And that was one thing I was going to talk to you about. So that leads that in quite nicely. So many people say to me, I just can't meditate. My mind's too busy. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, you're the person who needs it the most. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, back to that point, if you can think you can do this, you know, this is not, and I think it comes back to a bit of a misconception about what meditation's about. You know, we live in a world right now where meditation is much more mainstream and well-known in terms of what it can do for you. With that comes a, a certain amount of dilution of the knowledge and confusion. Um, and one of the big myths is, oh my gosh, I'm gonna, how can I possibly sit still for 20 minutes and stop the thoughts and do this. You know, my mind is just bonkers. You know, how am I going to be able to settle it down? And and it's an, it's an understandable concern. Um, and when one experiences Vedic meditation, one sees that it's not a question of being, of applying effort and being a good meditator and mastering it. It's actually a process of stopping the, the individual intervention and stepping back and learning to surrender control and allow for nature to deliver an experience that is natural and nourishing and transformational. And it's that letting go that... Um, and everybody can do that. And it's very, very reassuring when they have that experience of just how easy it is. So this myth or this misconception that meditation is hard comes from this idea that I have to stop the thoughts. I've got to stop the thoughts. If I can just stop the thoughts, there'll be a little glimmer of peace in there. That'll be lovely. 
you know. And it's misguided because any attempt to stop the thoughts does the exact opposite. It creates more thoughts. You know, if you say to somebody, don't think, they're going to think. They're going to be thinking about not thinking, you know. Um, and this is where the mantra is so important, the correct mantra, the correct class of mantra that we use, which is something that is chosen for you by the teacher, um, is that it's doing the work for you and it is the vehicle that pulls the mind into those less excited states. So great relief for the meditator. They don't need to do anything. They don't need to have this battle, this sort of, you know, so trying to suppress and control and focus and concentrate, which is just exhausting and miserable and kind of futile, actually. Very inefficient. Very, very inefficient. And, you know, so often there's this, you know, talk about the monkey mind, you know, oh, the mind's like a monkey and it's all over the place and, you know, got to just, got to kind of really got to be disciplined and you got to control it. And, you know, Anyone that wants to catch a monkey will work out pretty quickly that racing around trying to climb up trees and catch the thing and force it and control it is not the way to go. You know, put some bananas down on the ground and give it something that it wants and sit back and have a, have a nice cup of tea and wait for the monkey to come. You know, give the monkey what it wants and it will come there. And the mind, what does the mind want? The mind wants to go to that blissful inner unbounded aspect we it's so so nourishing so blissful and so all we need is a little vehicle to get there trying to force the mind to get there is just it's really uncomfortable so one of the reasons i wanted to talk to you particularly at this time um because it's come up in our um conversations obviously at the moment people are, are struggling with various things due to corona some really difficult things going on um but how we've spoken about it is that it's a time for opportunity and growth and i was wondering if you can kind of touch on that yes i mean i i really take care around how i frame this because there is no getting away from the fact that this upsurge in change that we're noticing in society is going to be very very challenging on so many different levels for and and some for more pe for some people more than others and you know i i take care around it because if we all sort of just have the sense that oh well you know this is a time for you know just taking it easy and focusing on on things that i haven't been doing and it's we we need to have a complete understanding of, of what's going on and we need to be attuned to the reality of the situation and for many people it's going to be very very challenging um, so I just sort of preface that um, what is happening at a macro level in society is that change is being enforced you know this is a time when coming back to our discussion about earlier about racing around and being overactive as opposed to being able to de-excite and settle down and slow down you know we live in an age where there's been a lot of pace there's been a lot of speed there's been a lot of racing around and what's happening is now we are in this enforced primarily shift you know nature is 
pushing back and saying, well, actually, that, that was unsustainable. And so whilst the signs were there of that unsustainability, nature's been giving us plenty of signals for quite some time, as a species, we were ignoring them in the main, in the main. And a point has come when this is, this is not an option, you know, this is going to be very attention getting. And so change is being enforced and it is requiring us to evaluate those aspects of our thinking and our habits and our lifestyle and our consumption and, you know, the list goes on, that have lost their relevance, they've passed their use-by date, and what are the elements of all of those things that are worthy of taking into the future? And this is, this is understanding the process of change. All change will involve some destruction. That's a fundamental part of any process of change. Destruction in the sense of letting go of the things that are no longer relevant, that are no longer serving us, that are no longer worthy and sustainable for the next creation phase, the next moment of development and innovation. And so the status quo that we've been in collectively, has, time is up on that. So there's a dismantling process. And what it's doing for all of us individually is providing us with an opportunity to evaluate what it is personally that has lost its relevance and what is personally uh, the area or area and areas that I need to be putting my attention for the future. This is the process that we're all going through right now and that's going to require some letting go and it's going to create that space that I was talking about earlier. So what's going to fill it? And that's where the opportunity really lies, you know, for me to be able to put my attention on letting go, not holding on, not holding on to something. You know, someone was saying to me, oh, when are we going to get back to normal? And I'm like, no, 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 that's not what's happening. You know, nature doesn't work like that. We're not going back to something. Nature moves forward. Nature progresses. Life, the process of change is progressive change, not backward change. We're not going back to some normal. Things are changing. If I resist that change, it's going to be very, very rough. And, and so the question is, how can I adapt? New information coming at me every day. And again, you know, this is where if I think personally about the impact that I see for myself and for my students is this capacity to deal with change in a completely different way. Because for the most people, change is incredibly scary and it becomes scary because it's a stepping into the unknown and it's a letting go of control. And for most people, in the, on average, control has been the main way that they've been operating. If I can just make sure everything stays the way I want it and people behave the way I want them to behave and da-di-da-di-da, then everything will be for hunky-dory. And, 
it's like trying to sort of that's like trying to say to the river no don't flow this way it's like sort of it's it's a it's a mistake so change is being enforced on and it's the question for every individual is how adaptive are you going to be and how awake and alert and perceptive are you to being able to identify those aspects that have passed their use by date and and then from that place what where does the charm lie where where am i going to be putting my creative attention to develop those aspects that are going to take me into this next phase of creation that's what everybody is dealing and it's that resistance to that process that will create create misery because the change is, is here the change is coming you know and it's are you going to be going gracefully and on the front foot or are you going to be handcuffed and being dragged along in a very bruising fashion there's a choice change is coming so you can resist it or or not control leads us very nicely <laughs> into what i really want to talk about which is um relationships because again it's something we've been touching on and um i recently joined your webinar the art of relating which is um part of your series of conscious conversations and um yeah i guess firstly like now is a time where people are having all sorts of anxieties about their relationships so i'd love you to touch on relationships and meditation and um a couple of things from the webinar that uh, really struck me and, and our conversations which is the idea of surrendering our preferences and the idea of surrendering our preferences in a relationship with ease yeah and then also what you talk about um how you have you your partner and then the relationship as a separate entity and how we can feed that relationship with love yes 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 oh my gosh Yes, we had so much fun with this. Was that last week? I gosh, I I, I lose track of uh, the days at the moment. But yes, we've just started this um, new series called Conscious Conversations, and uh, it was sort of a no-brainer for us to start with relationships because we know how fundamental that is to our experience as, as humans. You know, none of us are locked away in a cave in the Himalaya for 23 hours a day. We are out in the world and, and we are relating. And this art of relating is not simply the, the lovey-dovey relationships. It's, it's all relationships um, because it's so fundamental to who we are as human beings, that interdependence and that connectivity that I was talking about earlier. So it was... It was great to, to start that. And, and if anyone's interested, you know, they can get in touch with us. We're trying to sort of work out a way that we can pass that knowledge on to people that they can tap into it, that weren't able to, to see it, um, listen in live. Um, but in that 90 minutes, as you say, we covered quite a lot of ground. And in fact, we weren't able to sort of dive as deep as we get to all the questions. So we're actually going to create a part two, which will be fun. Why are relationships such a, you know, a hot topic? Um, and they always have been and they always will be. And I think they go to the heart of this uh, experience that human beings have been experimenting with, which is a very honourable one. The experimentation lies in where is fulfilment? 
ultimately everybody wants to be happy and they want to be fulfilled. Very honorable, very natural human condition. So then the question is, well, where does that fulfillment lie? And relationships are a very fertile playground for this, you know, trying to acquire fulfillment. When I get that person, when I have my soulmate, when I have my, you know, buddy, oh, you know, oh, everything's going to be great. Going to be, I'm going to be whole. I'm going to be complete. I'm going to be, you know, we're just going to be in the state of happily ever after, you know. And even when you say it out loud, there's like something kind of discordant with that. However, we have been so kind of indoctrinated, I guess, you know, that it's so pervasive, this idea that there's somebody out there who's going to complete me and make me happy. And it's a mistake. <laughs> it's a mistake. You know, there is no one, and this is a really controversial statement, there is no one who can make you whole and fulfilled and happy. Now, that flies in the face of every love song that's out there and every Valentine's card and every, you know, da-di-da. And yet it's what's so, so deeply ingrained is that I am going to acquire that everlasting fulfillment by getting someone. Let's, you know, be blunt about it. Like get that person. And this is where we run into trouble because the acquisition approach to fulfillment and it's not, it's not solely relationships, although, as I say, this is a, one of the primary places that we, we play around with it. It's, oh, you know, I'll be happy when I get that job. I'll be happy when I have those digits in my bank account. I'll be happy when I get that groovy architecture. I'll be happy when I get to go on that, you know, holiday, yada, yada, yada. You know, it's happiness, fulfillment lies through the process of acquisition. Now, applied to relationships, it leads us into some sort of murky waters because what we find is that we get that person and we then, we might feel, you know, some a period of time when that's all lovely and there's, there's some lovely shared experience going on and da-di-da, and yet, you know, we change, that person changes. And as you say, the relationship, you know, when we have a relationship, there's the, let's say, two people in a relationship, and there's this third entity. It's like a being. It has personality. It's the relationship has personality. And it is a reflection of those two people and what they bring to that relationship. And because of, well, my happiness lies with this person being and saying and behaving in the way that I want them to do and the way they did in those first six months when we were all honeymoony and lovey and, you know, you know, they, and they don't. And there's the control. I just, I'm going to be happy if they just keep doing that and not doing that and picking their socks up and da di da di da And it's, it's a very, uh, it has a very limited shelf life because the reality of life is that happiness and fulfillment are our what we're destined for, that is our ground state. However, where does that fulfillment, that true fulfillment lie? 
not through acquisition of objects, not object referral. It's a self-referral experience. Fulfillment, this is what all of the great traditions talk about through the ages. You know, know thyself. You know, the kingdom of heaven is within. It's not out there in that pair of shoes. It's within. You know, dive in and find that inner bliss, that deep inner state and stabilize it and touch it and come out and then go back in and touch it again and stabilize it more and more and more. And it's that, it's that that underlies so much of the grief that we observe in this process of getting good at relating because it's a process. It takes practice and it's part of our personal development. It's so intertwined with, with that. Um, so I think it's important to reference that and to frame that. Um, and as we talked about the other night, you know, relationships on some levels are a bit of a pain in the neck. You know, it's like, geez, I have to share this bathroom with this person and I have to, you know, watch this movie and I'm not really into that movie and da-di-da, I'm okay. You know, they want... And, and that's where, you know, we come to the real nub of what does it take to be in a relationship. It, it requires us to be able to surrender preferences. And as we talked about the other day, surrender those preferences willingly because if you're surrendering preferences with resentment or with a bit of a sort of a drag, then actually that relationship's not going to be lasting very long. That That's not a healthy relationship. So relationships are about surrendering of preferences in aid of what? In aid of a shared experience, a shared experience which is an uh, opportunity for union. It's a shared experience. It's an opportunity for connection. It's an opportunity for that unity which we could label out as love. This is what love is. The ability to connect on all levels and to truly know and experience what it is like for that person that empathy, you know, that kindness, all of this, that compassion, what is it that they're experiencing? What are they thinking? How are they handling this? That comes through a process of having shared, true shared experience. And in order for that to happen, I have to be able to surrender some of my own preferences. And if I'm able to do that smoothly and gracefully and willingly and without a whole lot of friction, then I'm onto something. That's a relationship that's got, you know, something going on for, you know, however long that that's relevant. Um, so, yes, it's, you know, it's, there's a lot of work for us to do in undoing some of these very, very deeply ingrained uh, theories and approaches to relationship. So and it's and it's so it holds such richness and such joy. So we all are striving for it. You know, it's just it the fundamentals are a little bit off. We could say it. Something we um, we touched on just before we actually started recording because it's something that I struggle with massively. But um, I, th I I think I'm getting better at it. But uh, expectations that we have of our partner, of our friends, mm, um, yeah. our family. Yes. And you said something that was really kind of profound for me, which was 
expectations are a form of control. Yeah, 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 because I, my little individuality, is having an expectation, you know, about what should happen. There's an interesting word. You know, somebody asked us a question on that webinar the other day, you know, what's the number one thing that has a negative effect on a relationship? And I answered that question by saying control. A tendency to control or a, pro a, a practice of controlling others. And that has its origins in I, me, my little individuality as an expectation about how you, this other, my lovable other, let's say, should, there's that word, should be behaving. It's an expectation. You know, there's that thing, you know, in order for there to be disappointment, there needs to be an appointment. You know, I've made an appointment in my head about what that person should be doing or should not be doing, when they should do it, how they should do it, da -de -da -de -da. What, what sort of look they should have on their face. No, daddy, all of the, the tone of their voice, everything, there is an expectation. Now, expectation, therefore, is a, is a subtle form of control. I, my individuality, knows best. Not nature, not the universal intelligence, me. I'm running the show. That in itself, that, that's a whole podcast we could talk about. But that's a mistake, because actually... You are a player. A, this is a play. This is a leela. This whole thing, the play and display of life, and you're a player in, on this. But you, you know, you're not the, you're not the executive producer. You know, um, but we think we are, and so it, it it rears its head in expectations. Now, I'm not saying it's not good to have goals and <laughs> objectives and. Um, those are all honourable. It's the question is once we start to impose control and a rigid attachment to how somebody should behave or how things should be or when that thing should happen and how it should happen and it's control. It has its origins in control. And why are we controlling? Because we feel an absolute need for stability and fulfilment. And if only I can keep everything the same and how I like it and prevent it from changing, here we come back to our change theme, then everything will be hunky-dory. And that's not the way life works. The one constant in life, the one constant in life is change. Everything is changing. You know, I'm going to have a new stomach lining in three weeks. You know, my, my whole body will have changed its cellular makeup within eight years, right down to the bones. You know, everything is changing at all times. So rigid attachment is the watch out here around expectations. You know, if I have a desire, there's a very, very interesting test around this. I, I have a desire for something. Now, let's say that desire doesn't play out. That's very interesting. How do you feel? Now, if you feel bummed out and, oh, no, and, man, I'm a victim. Why does this happen to me? And 
this is no good and I'm going to try another way and then what you can see is that you have had some attachment to an expectation of how things should be. However, nature is delivering a different idea about what's going on. And yet, if I'm rigidly attached and I'm authoring this, con controlling this, I find it very hard to let go of that desire. That's very different to, I had a desire. Hmm, that's interesting. It didn't play out like that. Okay, interesting. Okay, what? I need to, I need to stay alert. I thought it was going to happen this way, but it's not. Okay, right. What's nature up to? Where, where is this heading now? Because it's not going that way. So what is that asking me to do? It's asking me to adapt. It's asking me to stay alert, to be conscious, to not be stress bagged, but to actually be tuned into the now. Okay, where was it going now? But it's that, that former example that I gave of, oh, you know, not being able to let it go, but it, I wanted this to happen. You know, it's like, it's, it's a, it's, I had an expectation and I am really attached to that expectation and I'm not going to let go of it. And, you know, it's like, honey, nature's moved on, you know. <laughs> How long are you going to stay back there being all hurdy-poos about that, you know, and trying to make something happen when clearly nature's giving you a signal that something else is meant to be happening. So, yeah, expectations... Um, mm, something to take care around. Yeah, I think um, it also goes back to that whole idea of, of actually finding your happiness from within because I think for me, for, for some time, I've thought that, well, when this person does this for me or if, if this happens, it's going to make me feel good about myself and I'm going to feel like I've been thought about and loved and cared for. And now, and this is where meditation has had a huge impact on me, I think I have the awareness to be like, that's not right. My happiness has to come in from within me, not from mm. getting something from someone else or how they're going to make me feel. It's about how I make myself feel. Yeah, and, and you know, coming back to that thing about you know this third entity, the relationship, if you're 80% neediness and 20% fulfillment, that's what you give to the relationship. That is reflected in that being, that third entity. If you're 80% fulfillment and 20% neediness, that will be reflected in that being. Relationships are a function of what we give, not what we get. This is it. This is, you know, so what are you giving? Are you coming in there with your big bag of neediness and woes and poor me, poor me? Or are you coming into a relationship stable and conscious and awake and 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 grounded in in that in a self referral aspect of who you really are, and you bring that, and the whole thing is elevated. There's the elevational theater. Everything's just taken a massive jump upwards because I'm actually bringing something that is valuable. And here's the rub. I'm bringing something that I will therefore want, that I want to receive. You know, this classic, you know, you want kindness, bring kindness. You want attention, give attention, you know. And so it's a function of what we bring to it. Relationships are what we give. They will always reflect that. And so 
What are you giving at the end of the day? Are you a net giver of stressy, needy, worried, tense, selfish sort of orientation? Or are you at the end of the day a net giver of some balance and some calm and some some perspective and some happiness and some smiles? You know, that's what you're feeding that relationship with. And it will come back to you. So yeah, it's um, it goes to the heart of that, very much so. Gillian, we might have to do a part two. <laughs> All <laughs> around relationships, because it's yeah. just so fascinating. Well, maybe uh, what would be good is that we can get some questions and some, you know, and then that can, um, that can feed into, you know, if we did do a part two, then we could kind of really hone in on some stuff for people. You know, now that they've got yeah. a little bit of a, a framework of how I'm positioning this, then on that basis we could move forward. It would be very interesting. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I think that's a fantastic idea. Mm. Um, so just to let our listeners know, they you were saying about your, your webinar that we've been talking about, The Art of Relating. If they mm -hmm. get in touch with you, they can... Um, Possibly. Yes, I mean, what we're doing at the moment, because that was a, a live thing and we had we did record it and we're just working out a way to make that available to people sort of post the event. And that's we're, we're just getting the technology around that sorted. So um, if that's of interest to people, then go to LondonMeditationCentre.com and go to the online contact, the contact us thing and um, and let us know and, and then we'll put you on that list. Um, so that's a possibility. Um, and then we have, and then also they can go on the list so that we can let them know about the future ones that are coming up. Um, so LondonMeditationCentre.com is probably the sort of the hub that's best for people. Um, and we have our Instagram as well. And we have, um, uh, so there's, you know, that's a good way to connect with us. Um, and we're doing... Um, we're doing online introductory talks at the moment too. So what, the, the way that people learn Vedic meditation with us, because we're teaching it in its pure, undiluted form, what that means is that we teach in person. Now, that obviously has some implications for the moment in terms of the current state of affairs. Um, however, we know that that's going to change and... and uh, We'll be, we'll be moving into a different phase where we can actually, with care and social distancing, we'll be able to teach people in person. Um, and we're getting very close to that. Um, what we do ask is that we have an introductory session with people. And whereas before lockdown, they would happen, people coming like you did into a room and meeting us, um, we're doing those online and people are loving them. And that's just 45 minutes, 60 minutes, getting onto Zoom and hearing us talk about this and really explaining how it works and how the structure of the course happens, it's four sessions over four consecutive days and it's about two hours each day. We will be starting to teach, you know, as and when we can, um, and we're based in, in London. But the first step to learn more is to sign up for one of our talks, our um, online talks, and all of that information is in the website as well. Great, and I'll I'll link all of this in my um, podcast notes as well. So great, very exciting. 
Thank you, Gillian. You are amazing. I feel like I could talk to you for hours, so we'll definitely have to do a part two at some point. <laughs> Thank you so much. There's no shortage of things to talk about, is there? Never, oh my gosh, never. it's just, it's always such a rich um, discussion that we have. And there's, you know, that's, that's responding to the need of the time. That's responding to, you know, the people that are coming to you looking for that wise and trusted counsel. And it's just, it's great that we can have these chats and hang out and, and, you know, um, my desire is that people will feel inspired and curious and open to investigate this if it's not something that they've done already. And I look forward to us having more of these discussions. For sure. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. So stay well, everyone. And, um, and Sophie, you take care. And uh, I've really enjoyed this time. Gosh, time flies. I know. We, we were saying we'd do about 40 minutes and it's over an hour easily. <laughs> <laughs> I loved nice it. Time. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. Take care. And you. Bye. Wow, Gillian, I could talk to you for hours. You are totally fascinating and I am blown away every time we speak. Thank you for all your wonderful wisdom and for making a topic that is sometimes really hard to grasp incredibly accessible. I couldn't recommend Gillian and the London Meditation Centre more, so please go and check out all the incredible things that they offer. And stay tuned for a part two where we will explore the topic of relationships even deeper. Thanks so much to you guys for listening to my Move and Inspire podcast. Stay tuned for more interviews with some incredible people in wellness. Let's aim together to find our inner strength and to keep searching for what it is that sets our souls on fire. If you haven't already subscribed, I would love for you guys to check out my membership channel, Move and Inspire, for yoga classes, meditations, health and wellness tips, and recipes too. You get a free trial when you sign up, www.sophiedeer.com.